Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Believe Podcast Network, SoCal Sweat. My name is Ann McDaniels, a former NFL cheerleader and product manager turned actress and model who dreams of being a UFC fighter. Yow. Learning strategies to help motivate others leads me to bring you interviews each week from a range of athletes, experts in fitness and nutrition, and so much more. Thanks for listening to Believe, the number one podcast for working professionals, and let's push our endorphins to higher performance through SoCal Sweat. This is your host, Ann McDaniels, and thank you for joining me on another episode of SoCal Sweat. Now, who can recognize this movie? And the quote, Gentlemen, you are the top 1% of all naval aviators. The elite, the best of the best, will make you better. This was said by actor Tom Skerritt, who played Commander Mike Metcalf with a call sign of Viper, and this was the original Top Gun. Well, I am so excited to have a real Top Gun with us today. His name is Luke Lehman. He was a fighter pilot. He is now a multi-seven-figure CEO. He transforms entrepreneurs to high-growth leaders. Talk about bringing knowledge, experience, mindset, smarts, empathy. He brings it all as a coach. He will 10x your revenue, and you will have the freedom to enjoy life. I now introduce to you Luke Lehman, Navy fighter pilot, the top of the top, the elite, the 1%. He's wearing the big headphones and he already looks like a pilot. So how are <laughs> you this morning, Luke? And what are you doing in Florida? I'm great, and I'm actually down here on, on uh, travel and doing some business trip down, but I uh, saw just a few minutes ago, the F-15s were outside the window down there at Eklund Air Force Base and they were doing an unrestricted climb. And I, I gotta tell you that I, as I looked over there, I was quite impressed and quite uh, envious of the guys that were zorging up there into the blue sky today. Oh my gosh, what what air what base is that? Eglin Air Force Base is just just beside us there, and they uh, they have quite a bit of uh, fighter activity. It's one of their test um, wings down here. Okay, well, very cool. Well, my uncle, my great uncle, is a fighter pilot, and it just just the term fighter pilot just conjures up so many images of Top Gun and just. It's such a sexy occupation, yet it, it is extremely difficult. Just your knowledge of physics and math and science and then getting into the military. What was your childhood like? What prompted you to get into that field? Was someone in the military or had you watched yeah. a movie? Sure. Well, you know, uh, Tom Cruise did us a whole lot of favors, right? So if you're a child of the 80s or 90s, he sure, certainly helped us out there to, to be able to do that. And I think he's actually going to help the 2020 variation here as they get the next one out there. But Mine actually goes back. I was, if, if you trace it to the early roots, the early foundations. So I grew up in central North Carolina and the early foundations of it, the earliest time I recall was actually chasing um, life flight helicopters. I would make my parents drive over to the hospital when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And I wanted to see the helicopters take off. And the, one of the coolest times I, I can ever remember was being able to talk to the pilots. He got out of there. And I, I just thought about that guy getting out of his helicopter chariot um, and it was just so incredibly exhilarating for me. And I, I actually began to chase it from there and get into some aviation from that component. But I did not start my career thinking I would be an Air Force fighter pilot. I actually wanted to go into Army aviation. And that career took a, tra a trajectory shift my first year in college. Was that a disappointment for anybody? 
I don't think so. You, you know, there was so my I have some extended family that was um, in the Navy and and some uh, some military branches, but really the the desire to be an aviator was of my own. Um, it, you know, and I as I walked into college, and you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit today, Anne, but there was a lot of fear of the in, unknown and a lot of fear of or some insecurity associated with what it would take to become an aviator. In true confessions, they, what, what happened was my first year in college, there was a another um, person who was an incredible student, had been prior enlisted in the army, and he found out that he wasn't going to be a helicopter pilot. And, and my insecurities began to play up and you go, well, if he can't do it, then I can't do it. So I, I went to what I considered to be the next best thing, went next door to the, uh, to the Air Force and uh, asked if they, if they had any opportunity for pilots and the rest is somewhat history. Did you conjure up in your mind that aviation in the army was better than the how, what's the difference? I, I, unfortunately, I, as a common person, I really don't know. You, you know, it's the trajectory with which they train their officers is a little bit different. So the way that they think about it in the Army is they actually don't keep pilots in, in the cockpits forever. So as you continue in, in your officer trajectory, they actually want you to get out of the cockpit. In the Air Force, we don't. So really, you can go your entire career and you stay in the cockpit. They want you to retain that skill and really to be the best aviator. So that's that's the first and foremost. And that's kind of the difference culturally between the Army. But the Army just, you know, they're, they're awesome at flying helicopters. They just don't have any jets. You certainly did very well with it. So do you ever use that experience when coaching others in, uh, that person wasn't any better than me. I just didn't have the confidence in myself to, to, to do that. Yet I still have a satisfying career. Well, it's interesting you say that. I don't think I figured that out until my mid-30s. I don't think I gave name to what that was until I was very much later in life. And you really don't know it. I, I was re-listening to a podcast a, um, a couple of years ago with Marissa Peer. And she was talking about for entrepreneurs that the things that we fear most in life are the fear of inadequacy and the fear of judgment. And specifically for that, when you go back into the aviation, we certainly do that. When you go all the way back into the pilot training, there is, there is an inherent fear that you will not be good enough, that you will not be able to make that next milestone and that next leap. And then certainly the fear of judgment, but the fear of judgment's built into it. We had uh, probably eight or 10 check rides across, uh, across the course of pilot training, each one of those a milestone that could have gotten you sent on your way where you weren't going to be in the Air Force anymore. So there's a great fear, but it's it's endemic and it's, it's cultural in the Air Force. You talk about being a coach, and while I do enjoy coaching entrepreneurs and high performers, probably the greatest coach in my life is actually my ability as a parent. So as a parent of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, my daughter's seven and my son is five, is how do I teach them, coach them, mentor them, show them that they truly are capable of, it, you know, it's, it's kind of metaphorical when we say it, but you're capable of anything. As we start to think about what those milestones and those steps are, that's the greatest challenge in my life. It's kind of easy. I, I can help get high performers over the finish line. That's easy. Try to get your seven-year-old to do it. And that's, uh, that's quite difficult. Sure. Difficult. But that comes with a lot of passion. And, you know, they talk about resilience with kids because you want to raise your children to be very kind and gentle and caring towards others, but you also want them to have grit and resilience. And there are so many helicopter parents out there, especially now with COVID. I mean, that's just, and I'm not a parent. Mm -hmm. I choose not to be a parent for certain reasons, but um, I certainly respect those that, those that have uh, children. And it, it is tough. Like, how do you, how do you raise your seven and five-year-old with a tough resilience, but still teach them to be a good person, but fight for themselves because they should be able to retaliate and figure things out on their own. And you shouldn't have to have the, I mean, because I think too many parents 
there's they're either too soft or too hard. What is your gray area for raising your seven and five year old? I just put him in karate. There you go. <laughs> my, my my son walks around and says ayah kia all day long. So, um, you know, it's interesting because um, we as parents really try to break the socio and economic norms that you would expect, especially some of the gender biases. That's one of the things that we are really passionate about. So. I don't want my daughter to follow the gender norms and I don't want my son to follow the gender norms, which is really interesting because my daughter follows, um, you know, she's very independent. She would prefer to be a follower. She does not prefer to be a leader and she keeps her emotions a little bit to herself. My son is quite the opposite. He's extremely emotional and, and, and I love it. And I want to, you know, I want to continue to motivate him and encourage him that that's okay to be, but each of them have, have found their own way in the world, but grit, that's so important. And, you know, if you're not a natural leader, if you're not an extrovert, sometimes that word gets lost in a little bit of the communication about that. And, and what we what we really, really encourage her to do is just to let it be okay and to let it be enough. And that when she says that she doesn't want to be a leader, that it's okay for her to do that, but to, to be able to have the voice that can establish healthy boundaries and say the things that are important to her in her own life. That's wonderful. And it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing coming from a, a strong military masculine man to allow his son to have emotions because there's such a stigma against young boys. Oh, they're not supposed to cry and all of these things. And obviously mental health is at the top of our game right now. But I, I really admire you for the fact that you encourage your son and your daughter, whether it be, and again, you see a lot of strong military people, you know, really coming down hard on their sons, especially. Um, were you ever treated that way in your own family? Well, I, you know, much like a lot of Americans, my parents were divorced when I was 14 years old mm -hmm. and that began to kind of have the foundation. I was the oldest of five kids. So oh. the youngest at that point was three. And when you think about that, um, single mother type mentality, my father was still in the picture, but when you think about that, so my background, I don't think that I wasn't encouraged one way or the other, you know, my mom certainly, you know, in those gender specific roles, encouraged some of the emotional components. And my father encouraged a lot of the academic, you know, talk about left brain, right brain, there was a healthy balance of it. But I, I do believe that I was given a lot of the opportunity, a lot of the foundations to, um, to continue to grow. But I don't, I can't think that I was specifically, you know, you need to be more resilient, or you need to be more compassionate. Uh, it just, it just was a household of five there was kids. No and time. It was, exactly. It was, it was mayhem. Yeah. And you were the, you were the oldest. I was the oldest. Yeah. Still, yeah. Yeah. And I am too. And I think there's something to do with the oldest and an alpha. We've just become alphas. It's very, it's very interesting when you meet a firstborn that's, that's less of a leader and, 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 and more of a follower or a beta, but um, I'm sure that you paved the way for all your brothers and sisters. Now talk to, talk about your left and right brain, because to be a fighter pilot, obviously, you have to have extreme left brain as far as math, science, physics. But your right brain, you have to be able to, like I picture scenes from Top Gun, like with, I, like, I love the original, with Iceman and, mm -hmm. and Wolf and, and Maverick and everything like that. It's so highly competitive. When you got yeah. to that top bracket, was it just in your face and you still had to have sort of the gift of gab, sort of the gift of socializing because you have to be with a partner. You have to be a team player. How did you, what were some of the pitfalls of these challenges with the left and right brain? And what did you have to work on more or less of? It's, it's an interesting, one of the things we, we, I don't know if we do this culturally, but we, we attract a specific 
kind of person into the aviation community. And, and it's very type A, it's very left-brained. Frankly, it's very Republican. You, you know, you see a lot of political divide as well. And, um, but when you get into the left brain, right brain, I think what made me competent was my left brain. What made me good was my right brain, the ability to be empathetic, the ability to put yourself into someone else's shoes. So, so my background is an A-10 pilot. We, you know, I tell the story and I never picked a single fight, but I got some folks out of a couple of them that they didn't want to be in. And when I think about the left brain, so when you go back to pilot training, everything is very mechanical. It's checklist based. It's systems knowledge, hydraulics and electrical and pneumatic and, you know, understanding the aerospace and the dynamics and the physics of all of those components. So once you once you get past it, once you get through the components where you're no longer worried about, uh, do I know how to do this? Now the real right brain kicks in. Um, the creativity component. So do I have the ability to go out and creatively solve a problem that, I, that, that I've not been trained to do? Uh, I can think of one example in Korea uh, many years ago that we were flying up on the, um, on the Korean border. And, and for those folks that don't know, the Korean border has a very active missile defense system. It's just part of the North Korean missile defense system. And when you realize that you're so close, but we're in, we're in this uh, non, not, purely peace zone, right? We're, this is still a treaty. We're still in this armistice with, with North Korea. So it's not over per se, but it doesn't matter. You know, there's no amount of training that's going to get you out of that situation to realize that you're in peacetime, but you're not really in peacetime. And that's where the right brain kicks in. And I can think of multiple other scenarios where just massive empathy, uh, especially with the, the folks on the ground where a, a cool mind and a, you know being collected certainly added a lot of merit to the places that we were. In the face of America now, people don't love Americans, and you had to be—you had to be that empathetic person. And I'm sure that some of your your colleagues were not. I mean, I'm sure that they were arrogant. And and did you ever call someone out on that? Well, in the in the aviator and the fighter pilot community, we're extremely tough on each other. We sure. we are known for eating our own. So there's actually um, that arrogance is really more in the movies. It really doesn't go that far in our community because there's because you're already the tip of the spear. You know, if you think about how do you get selected, so there's some natural selection into the aviation or into the military in general, and then you're going to go to be an officer, and then you're going to select into pilot training, and then you're going to select into um, to the fighter route. So, and you know, even in pilot training, to be a fighter pilot, you have to be the top 50% of your class. So when you start to divide 10% by 5%, by 2%, you know, all of a sudden when you divide it by two so many times, you really do get the cream of the cream, you know, the top of the, the pick of the litter. And there's just not a lot, there is arrogance, but there's not a lot of room for it. And there's certainly not a, you know, a misplaced self-confidence. So we were pretty tough on each other when someone would, you know, if, if they were, if they were demonstrating arrogance, we we pretty much uh, helped them eradicate that out of their, their selves. But there's, you know, there is that stigma. And, and I'll tell you, you know, walking in, and I'll go back to the Korea example, just culturally, a white male in a flight suit, we, we value things differently in the U.S. than the Korean culture. One of the things they have is they have a very heavy caste system where they value elder uh, people that, that we don't really share in the U.S. It's not that we don't value our elders. We just don't put as much value. And that was something culturally, again, you have to be very empathetic with the culture that you're in 
and really displace a lot of the bias that I may have brought with me. You know, in that country is a great example. Certainly, the Middle East is even different than that. You probably brought a lot of those values home. I'm sure. Maybe you maybe you looked at older people in, with with greater respect when you came back. But we learn so many things, and not just if we travel, but traveling as the military. Now, quickly back to the top, sort of the Top Gun, top two percent. How this is a silly question, but how would you have fit in if you look where look at those characters of Iceman, Wolf, Maverick, Goose? Where did you fit in? Were you kind of more the the guy that sort of smoothed things over, like I would imagine you're Goose, but yet you, but not not the goofy one. I'm mm-hmm. sure there was the Iceman, the the nasty one. Did you did did you have that? in that sector. Yeah, I, you know, it's been so many years since I watched it. And man, I, you're going to uh, hit me up on this one because I'm going to say that I was most like Maverick and you're going to be like, you're not like Tom Cruise. Luke. Oh, no, um, I think, no, it, that's, <laughs> and I would have seen you as either, either one of those. Yeah, you know, it, p- part of, part of my, um, part of my success is the ability to be somewhat playful in, in a, you know, in intense situations to be able to still tell a joke and to smile and to, to be able to make light of situations when they are tense. And I, and I've carried that into my professional life, my parenting life, my entrepreneurial journey. Um, and so I think that, you know, if you, that embodiment of that playful heart, and I still carry it today, you know, in, in my business environment, I still love going out there and playing and, and telling jokes and being the life of the party for, you know, lack of better words. No, I love that. So you're definitely Maverick with a little touch, a little dose of goose. Because he was always yeah. um, comic relief, you yeah. know, and I think that it's just so important because someone of your stature and status is could be very, very intimidating. And when you do walk in with a sense of empathy and a kindness and humor and a smile, it definitely just relieves everybody because, oh, my God, there's a fighter pilot going to come in and talk to us about math and science and left and right brain. That can conjure up a lot of images of like, oh, I'm not good. That's I'm not good enough for that. But you come in with a soft approach. And that's very, very that's, that's what success wreaks. And also I can imagine you're just a wonderful father. So how did you um, pivot from being a pilot to, and first of all, how did you meet your wife? What a beautiful family. How did you juggle all of that? Then you have a multi seven figure uh, business and now you're coaching. How in the world do you juggle it? And you're traveling in Florida right now with two kids and a wife and all of these things. My wife and I met in South Georgia uh, when I was stationed at uh, Moody Air Force Base, and uh, she's traveled the world with me. She went to Korea with me. You want to talk about uh, trial by fire in a newlywed environment is try go living in South Korea, you know, for uh, a person who had not been traveling the world. So we saw Japan and Thailand, a lot of awesome things, but that that really formed the foundation for our married life in the way that we communicated and the way that we respect each other, Values. the way that we uh, problem solved. Um, you know, in, into my professional life, I got out of the Air Force thinking that I would go into commercial aviation because that was the natural trajectory. And I did. I went to fly for Delta Airlines for a while, and, and it's an incredible air, airline. I still fly Delta. But the concept of being a pilot, the closing of the cockpit door, we called it the sterile cockpit environment, was torture for me. The, it, was, it was like closing the door to my mind and the creativity. So for me, that the natural career path, what showed me the evolution was to go into the entrepreneurial world and to be able to solve problems. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, people talk about how do you make more money? And the, the answer for me is always, you solve bigger problems. You take the biggest, hairiest problem that you can solve and you give it the most creative and innovative answer that you can possibly give it. And that's how you have a greater impact on your world, a more positive impact around the, around the people around you. And, you know, eventually you make more money. 
Oh, that's amazing. I love that. So that was a sterile cockpit environment. To me, it's almost like I started in corporate America and then I left to pursue my passion. That was mm -hmm. definitely my sterile cockpit environment. And I think a lot of people have to are stuck in that in some way, whether it be sometimes in a marriage, in a, in a, in a family, and definitely in their jobs. I think it's like 75, I don't, it's a huge number of people that are dissatisfied with their jobs and, mm -hmm. and good for you for making the leap. I'm sure that, you know, that was a very comfortable, great salary. That would have been a very even keel, but like you said, you needed to be challenged and, and creative. And when you speak with corporate America and you speak with CEOs and companies, how do you get them unstuck? And I mean, I'm thinking about the company Google. They are so, they are so creative and they bring in speakers that are so out of the ordinary with topics that are almost considered taboo, but they bring it in and they, and they, they put it on the forefront. How do you work with these companies that are so stoic when you come in with, with your refreshing mindset? Yeah, I, my, passion is actually a little bit further down the food chain. So, you know, I, I do know a little bit about the Google culture and the way that they've been able to drive culture, which I'll come back to in just a second. We'll talk about culture. Uh, I really like the business, the entrepreneurs. And, you know, what I say is I, I love the businesses that are non-Amazon. If, if Amazon can put you out of business, it makes it tougher for me. But I really like the businesses that are service-based, local businesses. Um, as, a, as a CEO, as a young CEO, as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of opportunity for impact around your community, around the people that you work with, your partners. And one of the things that I found is that for CEOs is we, we get to a place that we don't believe that we have the skills to go to the next level. And you know, one of the we always use that the industry throws around the term limiting beliefs. Well, limiting beliefs are only limiting when you can look backwards and know that it was limiting. Before that, for you, it was just a belief. It was a, it, it was a perception that you held about the environment. So when I look at folks, I use the term comma yet. There was a point in my life where I was not a fighter pilot yet. There's a point in my life that I didn't even know how to fly airplanes yet or to lead a company or to be a parent. But really, honestly, as we, as we look at it and we think about solving problems and challenges is everybody's capable. You already have enough information, you have enough experience, and you are capable. So really, it's unlocking that specific thing in you that's going to enable you to take that next step. And that's such a barrier for so many people. I myself, I'm starting two businesses, and I have a patent and all these other things, and I'm writing a book, and it's like I get to one certain level, and then I know that, but I, but I don't, but then it's, I think it's also recognizing skill sets. I know I'm not good at certain things. So do you often talk about delegation? because everybody's good at something. You look at your son and you look at your daughter. What if they compare themselves to each other and maybe one gets mad because, oh, you're spending more time with, with her and not myself. And how do you, it's, it's, I think it goes through everybody's mind. Well, that's just, I, I, can't, I can't do that part of it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit. What do you talk about with delegation? So it's interesting you mentioned children. The, the word on the street right now for me is fair. My daughter loves to throw at my face that that's not fair. And I'm like, well, Tinley, you're, you don't understand what fair is. Con conversely, that's actually very fair. You know, I gave you this, I gave your brother that I fed you dinner. I fed your brother dinner. You, you know, it is very fair. Delegation is a very interesting thing. And, in, you know, in the entrepreneurial world and um, what we see is that folks believe or hold on to a belief for far too long that they are uniquely capable at doing something. And 
one of those things for delegation is to be able to move forward and realize that you are not actually uniquely capable to do that. And in fact, the more that you try to do the thing that is not your dharma, that you are not uniquely capable for, the more that you actually inhibit the organization and the growth around you. So, you know, for me, actually, there's a really fun exercise that I do with folks. It's, I, I, I call it the do more of, do less of list. It's finding 10 things that you want to do more of and 10 things that you want to do less of. And what that tells you is that the things that you want to do more of, number one and number one on each list are likely, number one on your do more of list is probably your highest value. So for me, the first time that I did that was spend more time with my family. I can't do that without letting go of something else. So you have to let go to let in. And when you do that exercise, what I found is that usually on number one, on the do less of list, it's just something you should stop doing. It's likely something that's a limiting belief or it's something inhibiting that you actually have the ability to turn off. Numbers two, three, four, and five are the very first things that you should delegate so that you can get back to the do more of list because that is something that you enjoy and that you're more naturally inclined to do. And that is your left brain laying that out. And I can see the graph and I appreciate that because you can, you can talk to your blue in the face, but when you kind of put it on graphically and I watched your Instagram reel where you did that going from 2020 to 2021 in 2020, these are the things that I, I had a great year, but this is what I'm going to rip up and I'm not going to do these things again. And I really, I really like that. And I think we all need to take a status of that, especially coming out of the pandemic. I mean, especially, I mean, I'm thinking what stop doing that because it's a, it's a fitness podcast. I would say, you know, stop doing all the treats around the house. And by the way, what, what has been your, what has been your biggest um, COVID cheat food? Ooh, uh, my wife, uh, she keeps the pantry stocked with double stuff Oreos and those things are going to be the death of me. Oh my goodness. And if she's from Georgia, I bet she can cook like no one's business. That's right. That's I right. love it. I love it. So a uh, double stuffed Oreos, I'll have to make a note of that. That I, I've been keeping track of everybody's uh, COVID cheat food. <laughs> so, but th this message is, is very, very great. And um, 2021, people were so excited about entering the year, but yet it hasn't really changed much. So you, you, you talk about limiting beliefs and, and making the list of what you're going to do more of, less of. And I think that's very important. Do you have your CEOs and your business people make lists like this in some of your uh, seminars? I do. And you know what's interesting? You mentioned just left brain a little bit. A lot of CEOs respond to left brain triggers. But what we're really trying to explore is the right brain motivations. So what I'm really trying to get down to is the values and beliefs that folks hold true. And then once we can figure those things out, we can really begin to unlock a lot of the potential. So values alignment is extremely important. And we kind of go back, at, you know, I told you I mentioned culture. I am a firm believer in the adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, you know, most of the time that I spend talking to my employees or talking to coworkers, I talk about driving culture in your organization. So for us, we talk about communication initiative and accountability are the three values that we value in our business. Uh, for me personally, health, wealth, and relationships are the values. And when you can really do some deep work on figuring out what your own identity is and the things that you hold you know, most precious in your values and belief systems. Now you can truly do some truly transformative work and you can show up as a better person. So, you know, from a fitness world is, you know, that last mile, that last foot, that last inch is almost all mental. And I've got some uh, very close friends that are in the fitness industry. And, you know, they, when you get to that place that you are 
getting ready for a competition and you have to go that last week when you're truly depleted, you're truly dehydrated, that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. And it has no nothing to do whether or not you can pick up a 55 pound dumbbell. It has everything to do whether or not you have the mental resilience to be able to carry through that last component. And that completely translates to every, every occupation. And the one that I'm most interested in is the setback. For example, I'm, I'm an athlete as well. And I was on a film set. I shattered my femur and my arm last Mm -hmm. year. Being an athlete, this has been absolutely crazy. I feel like a panther and a caged animal and and I'm just Mm -hmm. ready to break out. That would also align with someone in corporate America who has a huge setback. I mean, maybe they did something wrong that was just off the charts. And how do you come back from that? It's how you prepare yourself as a, as a person going forward is what makes your character. Do you talk about big pitfalls in corporate America with these CEOs? We see them all the time. And, you know, and one of the things that you have just vocalized is you have to be in it. And you have to become aware that it's only a temporary setback and you have to allow it to just be that. So, you know, once you have an injury, you know that it's not permanent. If you continue your rehabilitation plan, if you continue to do physical therapy, it will get better. It's just not going to get better tomorrow. You're going to have to be there. You're going to have to sit in the moment. You're going to have to work through it. That same thing happens in corporate America. We're going to have setbacks. I mean, Every single one of us just had a setback, right? You know, it, it, unless you're unless you're an Amazon that had a booming year because everybody got everything delivered, the majority of us in Q2 last year had a setback. There was things that, you know, at, at all stages of business that we were not prepared for a global pandemic. When you sit in it and you become aware that it's just the status of today, you can begin to figure out what that next step is, much like an injury. You can apply those same principles in business where I'm just going to figure out what I need to do today. I'm going to figure out what the first step is and the second step and the third step. And then today I'm going to take imperfect action and I'm just going to figure it out one step at a time. Did you have any, any setbacks yourself that was just like made you question everything and that created the resilience in you? Uh, Every day, you know, every day. And, you know, there's, there's micro and macro things that there's, you know, there's, there's setbacks. You can have a micro setback that you're late to a meeting. You know, if, if you told me that you would like for me to dial in a certain time and I'm a couple of minutes late, there's a setback. Mm-hmm. I certainly had some some very heavy macro setbacks. Um, you know, like many folks in America, divorce of your parents cause you to think about a lot of, you know, question a lot of things. But I failed many times along the way. I, I can tell you, I can tell you a story flying airplanes. I flew out of the top. We call it a military operations area. It's just an imaginary box, but I flew out of the top of it upside down in a T-38 on my birthday. And for my birthday that year, I got a failed check ride, which meant that I might, I might have washed out of pilot training. And there have been constant setbacks along the way. And I wish that I could tell you that I had the emotional resilience, but there's probably a reason why the majority of corporate America has 65-year-old CEOs it's because of their emotional resilience. It's not because they're, they're the smartest person in the room. They've just seen it enough times that they know how to handle it and cope with it. But I have them all the time. And certainly in parenting, you know, you, you question your logic every time when you're trying to wrestle a five-year-old to go to bed and, and losing. And you think you're cool. And then, and then your kids hit, hit the preteens and you're just not. Well, I, <laughs> it's I, over. I, I, I think it's great that you come in with, you're very human about it. You're very human about it. What does that actually mean? 
Well, that, that goes back to my measures and the pillars of my life. So I, you know, I talk about um, health, wealth, and relationships. And one of the things that I really got wrong, and I, I think a lot of folks get wrong, is that we really lose sight of our priorities. And if I were to tell you that my family was my highest priority, and that was not reflected in my actions, then it's truly not my highest priority. And you know, a lot of folks, we, we demonize wealth. And as you make this change in your mindset and you become focused on your priorities, for me, you know, and I mean, I, I, I have a planner that I get in every day and I focus, I, I know from the very start of the year, what I'm gonna do for the majority of the, the year. And then I break that down into a 12 month cycle and then into the week and then to the day. But, you know, for me to be able to focus on that health, wealth and relationship, those are the three pillars of my of my life. And to live with intentional alignment or intentional congruence means that you are focusing and being intentional about feeding all three of those pillars. And, and you can't rob from one other one from the other consistently and expect to have any different results. So if I always rob from my relationships, from my family and my wife and my children, or I always rob from my health, if I skip workout days so that I can go spend more time at work and I let that work day continue long and I miss dinner, well, now my wealth becomes disproportionately the focus of my life and everything else goes by the wayside. So for me, you know, my wife, she'll hear this and she'll tell you about it, but I schedule family time with lunch, two hours on Tuesday. And I stop what I'm doing, I turn the phone off and I go feed that because that's when my family is available. And when I prioritize that and when I schedule it, it keeps everything in my life to be intentionally aligned. And then your kids know, your kids know that you're there for them as well. And that's wonderful. Um, I'm sure there are times where you don't show up, you may not show up for a, a karate match and things like that, but they understand because you balance it so well. Well, I certainly appreciate the vote of confidence. You know, well is a, you know, it's, it's subjective. Yeah, but but I'm very intentional about it. So, you know, when I go out on the road and, and I'm, I'm traveling today, but I'm very specific about what I, I today is a great day for me to have a 14 hour workday. I can feed that today because I know that when I show up to my family that I'm going to have that time to pay them back. So we talk about macro and micro scale, but if you have the ability to feed them, feed those things on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, and you can keep them in check, you know, my five year old doesn't get it yet. Um, actually just as an aside, and I, my father got pneumonia. I was actually coming back from Afghanistan. I just met my girlfriend at the time that would become my wife. And I, I showed up into the hospital and the, you know, the doctor, when you ask him the question, you say, you know what, doc, hit me straight. I'm a fighter pilot. I can take it. What's best case, worst case. He goes, well, best case is you'll have, he'll have a speedy recovery. He'll be out in a couple of weeks. Worst case is, well, he dies. And you go, oh my goodness, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. But when, when you when you think about those things, one of the one of the components of that, I said, Dad, you know what I noticed about this was that your phone never rang. And I was pretty young, but what I didn't realize was the phone never rang because he had a outbound role. It was a forward-facing role, and it was his obligation to pick up the phone and make those phone calls. So for me, the lesson that I carry with that, I try to be very specific with my children that there may be earbuds in my ears, but the alternative for that is that I'm on the road. So this is actually work time that you're getting a little bit of my attention. And what I will do is I will keep your time clean so that you get all the attention when it's your turn. Oh, I love that. And how do you, how is your father today? 
alive and well. He's an entrepreneur oh, as well. That's so he's wonderful. A, he's oh, that what a what a good story. That that makes makes me so happy. That especially coming back, had you met your girlfriend and become your wife, you lived you lived abroad, then you came back. What what a full load. Um, quick question on, you know, you have your fourteen hour work day today, and then you can really focus. You're exhausted, and then you're flying back. And how in the world, then, then your kids are jumping on you and everybody wants your attention. Some, sometimes parents will snap, and some, especially traveling. I mean, I traveled all the time pre-COVID for, for modeling jobs and things like that. And when I came home, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I love living by myself. I love being single. I can't imagine. I need that decompression tank, but I know myself so well. Is it, is it exhausting? Is it tough sometimes where you just have to turn that off and be like, no. This is my priority, my, my family's priority right now, and I will perform. One of the things, Anne, that I think that parents and um, people in general, I think that we do not give ourselves enough time as individuals. And we don't allow our souls to be fed and our minds to be fed and our hearts to be fed. So I am quite extroverted. My wife is quite introverted. She needs recovery time. She needs the ability to go get a, um, you know, sit on the couch under a blanket and read a book. And that's how her mind recovers. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm a little bit of the opposite. So, you know, one of the things as an entrepreneur and really coming out of being a fighter pilot was I have to have my quiet time. And my quiet time, I wake up pretty early, so 5 or 5.30 in the morning, and I have a very specific uh, you know, regime. I start with 15 minutes of quiet time meditation. I get up and I have a, a full cup of water and, but, and then I get into my planner and I plan my entire day. And then I do some type of physical exercise, whether it's stretching or yoga or run or, or whatever it is. And I can tell when I'm off balance, when I don't feed that component of myself, you know, that's, that's probably one of the biggest things that I, you know, I would just implore folks that are parents of small children or entrepreneurs or, you know, even in the fitness industry, you got to, you got to allow that time for yourself. And, and because of that, when you feed yourself, you will be better for the way that you show up for others around you. Absolutely. And especially as a CEO or entrepreneur, besides being a parent, um, you have to have some kind of structure. Like when I left corporate America, I've, I was, I've been an entrepreneur ever since. If I don't have very similar to you in the morning, of I full glass of water, I always show gratitude in some way and always have a little bit of exercise. And when, it's so hard when you travel because your schedule is off and you know when you're off balance and That's you right. know you're like, you're, and I, I have a little bit of anger issues. I know I need to get away. And if I don't get a workout in or some kind of physical fitness, then I'm, I'm not good. I'm a, I box, so I take that, auto, that aggression out. But with my injury, I have not been able to do that. So I've had to go to other coping mechanisms, which are so difficult. Um, but, you know, like you said, you have to stay in it and it's temporary and you make it work and it makes you grow. So I, I really like your tactics because I feel like the top CEOs, the most successful people do exactly what you just said. They are, they are early risers. They, they plan, they exercise, they have a big glass of water and usually show some gratitude. So that's, that's wonderful. And then that keeps uh you... I love that. Yeah. You know, it's funny and I'll, I'll share it. You know, I, I do it every day in my journal, you know, on the top of it, I've got my plan on the right side. It says gratitude. And I write down three things that I'm, you know, I'm grateful for. Uh, yesterday it was Bombas socks. I just really love the socks. And then I'm not an affiliate. There's no plug for them. <laughs> it just happened to be something that I was very grateful for that day, but usually it surrounds my family. Those are good because I hate those socks that I call them quitters. 
Ah, yeah. you, don't don't quit on me, and you're halfway down my foot. That's right. <laughs> I love that. And you're and you're double stuffed Oreos. I'm sure that you maybe potentially put that in your gratitude. They gotta go away. They gotta go. They gotta get exactly. out of here. But I I do have a friend that picks up her son picks her son up every day from school. Um, drops her off, drops him off, and picks him up, and they talk on the way in and on the way out what what they were grat- grateful for in the morning and what they learned in school and what they were grateful for. So mm-hmm. I think it's important and that. Sh- obviously shows your kids. So thank you so much. How can we follow and support you and constantly just put you in the spotlight of, of, of spreading your good word and, and following you on social media, which is all at Luke Lehman on Instagram, which is, and you've got great reels. What are your goals and how can we support you? Yeah. You know, at this, at this point in my life is I really, I'm on a mission to make 10,000 millionaires by 2025. I just, I believe that I, I truly do believe that entrepreneurial spirit and the road to entrepreneur journey is, is the path to true freedom. And, and as we make a transition in our American culture, I believe that small business owners are going to truly, you know, revolutionize and they have in the past, but they will continue to be on the forefront of that. And if I can enable those folks and, and help them to become better entrepreneurs and to provide for their families, th- then I want to go do that. Uh, I'm certainly active on almost, well, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook are the most active, and I'm pretty easy to find at Luke Lehman. And I would absolutely welcome folks to connect with me. And, and even if it's just to say, you know, something you said resonated with me, or I've got a question, I'm certainly happy to answer those things and see if I can um, share a little bit of insight. And you can do private coaching. Absolutely. Yeah, happy okay. to do so. That's wonderful. And I think, I think the, I, I didn't think about a coach ever before until I started really, really digging into my own patents and things like that. And I know the importance of it. So I, I intend to look you up in the future as well. Well, yes, yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that about coaches because I, I, you know, we, we have a little pause in life is, you know, we all have coaches in elementary and middle and high school. My, my high school wrestling coach was one of the most influential people of my entire life. And then I had instructors that were coaching and mentors. But as I got older in my professional life is you really begin to find coaches that fill in the gap for a specific thing that you need. So if you need a physical fitness coach or a rehab coach, you're going to be able to go get that. But for me, it's, it's been about a lot about the mindfulness. You touched on the importance of your wrestling coach and what a great mentor he was to you. What an impact he had on your life. What, what was that? And what was your position and how well did you do in wrestling? Not well, Really? <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, Dave Grant, uh, we'll see if he listens to it. Uh, he was also my, um, architecture teacher, which is called drafting. So I took three years of that and, um, uh, in high school, but one of the things about that, so I was voted the most improved my junior year in high school. And you know what the most improved means is that you were the worst and now you're not the worst anymore. Uh, <laughs> So it was quite a trophy to get, but I'll tell you one of the things that I, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, and I wasn't probably able to quantify it until many years later, but one of the things that he was so great at a coach was the ability to take you from one position to the other, from A to B, but allow you and encourage you to be comfortable in A. So at 135 pounds of um, you know solid steel as a junior in high school was, he allowed me to not be great but to have a passion for the sport and the real output of that, you know, and you come all the way back into what that probably had to do with aviation many years later. It's an individual sport and it's a team sport. 
So you have individual performance roles, and those two things have almost direct correlations. There is nobody else in the cockpit that's going to bail me out of a single seat fighter. There's nobody else that's going to come to my rescue on the wrestling mat when it's your turn to go out there and, and start the mat. But you know that that was probably the biggest um, impact that that coach had was just to allow me to be where I was and to see me where I was, and then to move me from A to B in that constant improvement. And, and it was it was more of a life lesson than probably any amount of you know physical acumen. I just think it's very refreshing, especially in wrestling, because that is like you said, it's individual and it's team and it's, and you're weighed in, you're everything. And I'm sure even the diet, did you stay at 135? Did you end at 135 as well? My, my senior year, I was 135. Yeah. So I, I only wrestled three years in high school and I did not wrestle my freshman year. And that was, um, that was my final year. And it was, you know, I, I think that the coup de gras was, I was a, um, I won a tournament at some point my senior year, and it was a nice vote of confidence, but certainly wasn't going to go to North Carolina State University and become a collegiate wrestler. Sure, or Greco-Roman. Well, mm -hmm. but it's a good, it's a wonderful, wonderful training ground. And what is your wrestling coach's name? Dave Grant. I think he's still at uh, Williams High School in Burlington, North Carolina. His Dave Grant, shout out to yeah. him. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> You'll never forget him. And I'm, and, and the, right. again, the power of coaches. He paved, he paved that success in life for you to be comfortable at your 135 made of steel, most improved. Well, congratulations. I, I, for a most improved person going from the worst, I think that you've, you've pretty much uh, squandered that. So fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Very important. Well, I will put all of your links and everything in the podcast notes. And uh, thank, you, thank you, Luke Lehman, fighter pilot who loves double stuffed Oreos. It's been a real pleasure. And big, big, uh, lots of love to your wife and, and two kids. Well, thanks for having me, Anne. It's been a pleasure. It's a good conversation. I look forward to staying engaged with your audience. And that was Luke Lehman, the elite 1%, the top gun of Navy fighter pilots turned seven-figure CEO and corporate coach. You can find him at LukeLehman.com and on Instagram at Luke Lehman. You can find out more in the podcast notes below. We appreciate you for listening. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Luminary, Tuned In, or at Bleep.com. You can reach out to me for any questions or topics you'd like covered on the show at Ann McDaniels or at Ann McDaniels Actress. And I'll see you next time on So Sweat. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.